Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Anybody awake? I know we had the daylight savings thing. It's kind of rough, wasn't it? <clears throat> so, in Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Who feels this way about Leviticus? I mean, seriously. Some of you have tried this read through the Bible in a year thing. And, you know, some people, if they're, if, if they're persevering, they'll get through all this stuff in Exodus about the, making the tabernacle and making all the implements and making all the, the, the linen ephod and the, all this stuff for the high priest. Then they think, okay, finally, I got through the end of that. And then they open up Leviticus. And then they get to this. God called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to Yahweh, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he's to, prevent, he's to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to Yahweh. He's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He's to slaughter the young bull before, the, before Yahweh, and then Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron and the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And then Aaron's son, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And if you're not hungry, you're reading this, and it's really not doing much for you, is it? Right? Origen, one of the most brilliant biblical interpreters in history, early church father. He said, you know, if you read people passages from the divine books that are good and clear, they will hear them at once with great joy. But provide someone a reading from Leviticus, and at once the listener will gag and push it away as if it were some bizarre food. He came, after all, to learn how to honor God, to take in the teachings that concern justice and piety, but instead he's now hearing about the ritual of burnt sacrifice. Other than Ron, many of us have precisely that kind of experience when we come to a text like Leviticus. In fact, I think it is not at all 
uncommon for us when we come to the Word to ask, okay, so what does this mean for me? And that's certainly a good question to ask. And when we come to this text, we have a hard time finding anything. How is this relevant to my life? I'm not an ancient Levite. I'm not making any sacrifice. I wouldn't even know where to find a kidney on a goat if I had to. So why do I have to read about whether it gets burnt up or sautéed with onions? And the truth is, this has been the experience of the church for some 2,000 years. Origen talked about it. It had been going on for some time. By the time, come third century, he was dealing with it. It's been the case ever since. It was a fairly big deal some ten years ago or so when there was a young pastor out in Michigan named Rob Bell started a new church, and he started off with an 18-month series on the book of Leviticus, which is the kind of thing that one would normally expect to be a punchline, though in his case, it ended up bearing tremendous fruit. And that church started, not that numbers were everything, but that church started with 1,000 and had 10,000 people coming by the time he was done. So for the next 18 months, we're going to be studying Leviticus. <laughs> we get the name Leviticus from the Latin, from the Greek. Because this book has a lot to do with the sacrifices being offered by the Levites. You may remember there are the 12 children of of, uh, Jacob of Israel. The family of Levi, the tribe of Levi, has the exclusive franchise for the worship of the people of Israel. But the first word in Leviticus, and the name of our Torah portion this morning is the Hebrew Vayikra. Ron, do you know what Vayikra? You want to cough that up for us? It's all right. Vayikra means, and God called. God said, God called to Moses in the tent of meeting. See, I think maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons that we find it difficult Sometimes when we approach a text like Leviticus to find it making sense to us, to find it relevant to our lives, is that we are asking what this has to do with us rather than what this has to do with God. And what I want to suggest is that if we start with the question not what does this mean for me? But if we start with the question, what's God doing? Then we may find, and try this experiment with me over the next couple months, and maybe I'll be wrong, but you can let me know. Maybe we'll find that this book actually does have some sweetness to it. And not just if you're a grilling enthusiast. Because there's a lot of grilling going on in Leviticus. This is a tough book for vegetarians. I'll just say it right now. But if, if you're like me and you like watching those shows on the Food Network where they, they break out those gigantic grills like the one you have on the cover of, of your bull, that's like apparently the world's largest grill. It's basically 
a truck that they converted into a massive grill and they take it around to county fairs and I, I'm getting hungry. So if we start asking what is God doing rather than what does this mean for us, then maybe we're going to find that this makes some sense. And, and what, what I think we have to ask is what was God doing then at the time we're reading this time of this text? What was God doing then? And then only after that we ask that question, then we maybe can make some sense of what God is doing now. So just by way of review, Genesis, you have Abraham coming with all his family into the promised land. You get the patriarchs, you get the whole deal with the famine, they end up in Egypt where God has conveniently stuck our friend Joseph. Joseph is in Egypt because he was sold into slavery, but turns out God was going to work this out for good. There's the Nile, there's Egypt. God delivers his people out of Egypt, and the idea is that he is then going to put them up to the promised land, which is up there. Map not drawn to scale. This is Saudi Arabia, by the way. Oh, and this is, sorry, whoops. That's Sinai. Okay, the really cool part is in about a month, I'm getting an iPad, and I'm going to be able to telestrate like John Madden on maps, and it's going to broadcast something, it's going to be so awesome, so enjoy the whiteboard while you can. I'm a little concerned, I mean, this year I got a Prius, a cat, and I'm getting an iPad, this is kind of messing with my mojo, but so, so God's people... Remember, you know, the horse and rider cast in the sea. They get delivered, and now they're here. Somewhere around here, although they might be here, we don't know. Either way, they're in one of these places waiting to get what they need to get so that they can go up into the promised land, which is what God told them to do. God's giving them this land. Why is he giving them this land? Because God has called his people out of slavery so that they can live in a place where they'll be secure where they'll experience prosperity, where they'll experience justice, and where, most importantly, they will be able to be a blessing to the nations around them and to the nations that go through. Because here's the deal. This, this area that they're going to be in is the Delaware of the ancient Near East. And rather than having massive tolls and clogged up toll booths, Israel is to have the presence of the living God and a society that is experiencing his shalom, his peace, his prosperity, his blessing, his justice. And as people go through, as they come in and out, because they're right along the major trade routes, they're going to ask questions like, what is it about these people and what is it about their God and how come they have it so good and where can I get some of that? But in order for them to get there, and by the way, this process of them in a really long and messed up fashion getting there is the book of numbers which comes next he has given them there in sinai his torah his law right and uh, you remember the first half of the book of exodus is them uh, is god's people being redeemed out of egypt you, know, you get the plague god rescues them pharaoh's army takes it on the chin and then it comes to a screeching halt in chapter 20 where now the action stops, and now we start getting legislation. It starts with the Ten Commandments, but then we also get uh, God giving specific instructions about how his people are to set up 
this tabernacle in which he's going to be worshipped. And again, uh, not to... Uh, if, if, by the way, last week, I, I, some of you weren't here. My, my teacher, John Wargel, uh, was here. And I, I will not say that I have greater understanding than my teacher's because um, I'm always so blessed by his stuff. He, he gave sort of an allegorical reading of the book of Exodus, which is a little different from what we usually do here, but it was lovely, and, I, and, and it, it should be on the website soon. Uh, I really encourage you to read it and to listen to it with uh, sort of an imaginative um, approach as, as you hear it and as you try to picture the things he's talking about. But you remember that, that God calls his people to set up this this tent of meeting. So you have this tent inside a courtyard here's the courtyard and there's the tent inside the tent you have the holy of holies that's got the ark in it that indiana jones finds later and you've got the the lampstand you've got the table with the showbread you've got the incense altar and out front you have this massive altar that you put the grilled animals on and God in in great detail gives his people instructions on how this is to be built and not only in, in terms of the basic construction but really the the, the beauty the the artistry of the construction of, of uh, not just the the tent but but all of the implements that are going to be used in in worship so God's people are preparing to go into this land that he's giving them but first of all he's saying all right when you go in the land, and by the way, you don't have to wait till then because you're going to start now, this is how I'm calling you to worship me. So there's, there's a sense in which really the whole book of Leviticus is kind of given there, right there at the, at the feet of Mount Sinai, right? That God is given, uh, giving Moses his instruction there on Sinai, and this is, this is sort of being constructed for the first time right there uh, at the base of the mountain before the people are then going to head off to the promised land. So what God is giving them instructions on, as we'll see here in the book of Leviticus, he's already told them how they're going to build the thing. Now he's going to tell them how to use it. So in the book of Leviticus, again, just to give you a a quick overview of what we're going to get, you get in chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus, you have sacrifices all sorts of different types of offering that are made and how they're made and what parts of the animal get burned up sort of metaphorically eaten by god what parts of them are eaten by the priests what parts of them are eaten by the person bringing the uh, bringing the sacrifice we have in, in eight through ten the institution of the priesthood we have the initial ordination of aaron and his sons we have in, in 11 through 15 laws about ritual purity. Because for God to be worshipped acceptably, for the holy God to be worshipped in a holy way, he's made it clear that there's certain ways that you need to be pure, you need to be clean in order to approach him and to offer acceptable worship. Now, ritual purity, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that you're like cleansing yourself from doing something wrong. I mean, do you, things like a married couple having sex will make them unclean until the evening. So uh, if, if you're a priest, for example, that means that, that uh, basically you've you got to hang out with the boys and you can't go home.
the night before you have to go and offer your, uh, your sacrifices in the morning. Otherwise, you might not be able to do the job. So uh, ritual purity, 11 through 15. Then chapter 16 is all about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the climax of the Jewish year. This is the day in which God's people are restored, reconciled, their sins atoned for. And chapter 16 has uh, everything on, on how that is the, to be performed. And then you have in chapter 26, uh, chapter 17 through 26, various laws. There are, the rabbis count up 613 commandments, 1316 commands in, in Torah. And, and a whole heck of a lot of them show up there in chapters 17 through 26 of Leviticus. These are on, on things from what kind of clothes you wear to uh, the ways that you interact with other people, to what you do with land, to what you do with, with uh, property. And, and these various laws, again, are given in the context of God calling his people to this land that I raised and giving them the law that is going to enable them to live well within it, right? And then finally in chapter 27, we get some stuff about tithes and offerings, So what was God doing at the time that he gave Leviticus? God was getting his people ready to go into the land. He was taking people that had been enslaved for 400 years. And he was preparing them, giving them what they needed so that they would be all set up once they got into the land. And, incidentally, in the meantime, so that they would be able to worship him acceptably in the desert on the way there. The original plan, of course, was that they would not spend 40 years wandering Again, because they screwed some stuff up, they ended up having to pack the tent around a lot more than, than uh, was originally intended. We'll get to that in numbers. So that's what God was doing back then. He was getting his people set up. He was providing them with what they needed to know and what they needed to have as, as their law books to worship him acceptably and to live as this just society. But in, we can't just go straight from what God was doing then to what God is doing now. All right, for one, re- one thing, then is some 3,400 years ago, roughly, give or take. We also have to look at what God was doing between then and now. And what was God doing between then and now? Jesus is the answer, yes. If you're not sure in church, the answer is Jesus, yeah. Now, Jesus, or as the theologians will say, the Christ event, has a whole lot to do with how we understand not just what God was doing then and what he's doing now, but really what he has been doing through the scope of human history Because if we take seriously what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, and we do, then we have to recognize that all of the stuff that's going on here in Leviticus, especially the stuff about the ritual sacrifices, is in some way and in a very meaningful and important sense pointing to Jesus and fulfilled by Jesus. This is why we don't have a laver and a a grill out in front of the church someday if we end up buying the church i'd love to like 
put in a grill in the back. But, but we don't have these things because we are not worshiping the way God's people were called to worship back then because these things, the writer of Hebrews says, are a shadow of the ultimate realities. And Jesus has in himself fulfilled this law. Paul says in, in Romans that Christ is the telos namu, the fulfillment, the climax, the end in the sense of being the goal of Torah. Which is a break for us, especially if you're vegetarian. But it also means that everything we see in here, everything we see in Leviticus, we have to see through the lens of Jesus. And as we'll see, I hope, in the next couple months, that actually makes it clearer. So when we find ourselves then getting to the question of what God is doing now, when we do come with our questions, again, I want to emphasize these are not bad questions to have. And I am fairly confident that whatever is going on in that room at GBMC, where I hope to visit the Lefebvre's in an hour or so, they're probably not sitting there thinking, you know, I wonder what Leviticus 1 through 5 has to do with this little baby Georgia Eden that we just had. I don't think Mary Barr is sitting in her room at Sinai recovering from surgery and wondering just why it is that you're supposed to burn the fat tail and what that crop is that's supposed to be taken out of the bird when you burn it up. Most of you did not come here this morning, and I think some of you came having read the first chapters of Leviticus, which, again, I encourage you to do. That's one of the reasons we give you the, the texts that are coming up so that you can read the passage before you come to church. But my guess is many of you read it and said, huh? Well, I wonder what we'll talk about on Sunday. What God is doing now, though, is continuous with what God is God was doing then. What God is doing now is continuous with what God is doing then. Because what was God doing then? He was calling his people to be about the work of cosmic redemption, right? He didn't just give them the law and the land and the tabernacle so that they could get their God thing on in their place and and uh, be happy. I mean, that would have been pretty impressive in and of itself, right? I mean, the whole world's a mess, and God's going to at least help some people out. That Like, that would have been all right. No? It kind of sucks if you're not part of that. If you didn't get lucky enough to get born into that tribe, then I guess you're, you're you know, kind of out of luck. But that's not what God does. He blesses Israel so that Israel can be a blessing. There's a sense in which Israel is God's beta test. Israel is the way that God is going to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live at peace with him. Again, as you know, if you read on later in the story, it ends up not working out very well, not because God screwed something up, by the way, but... This is not a project that God has abandoned, the idea of reconciling the world to himself. No? 
think I remember reading something about that somewhere in the Bible, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And God is not only about this work of cosmic redemption, he is about this work of cosmic redemption through his people. And he calls his people to worship. And if you can kind of see the forest for the trees as you're reading Leviticus, if you can kind of zoom out a bit from the question of, of what exact parts of the animal are being thrown where, you see that God is prescribing worship for his people that is regular, that's systematic, worship that is clearly prescribed, worship that is costly, worship that involves sacrifice. An animal was a means of production. I mean, that's serious capital. And you're taking your livestock to be burned up would be like Ron taking one of the trucks that's used in his business and just blowing it up. Not a cheap thing. It's funny, last week, uh, Father John, when he was here, uh, commented that we don't have an altar in the front of the church. And I, I told him we don't because there's not, if we have the altar there, there's not enough room for the music team, and it's way too heavy to move around every week. Uh, where we do have the altar is out in the fellowship hall. And we have it underneath the board that talks about all the various ways in which New Hope is involved in service to our community and our world. On it, we have information about ways that you can be uh, not only involved in, in uh, interesting activities, but ways that you can be involved in serving. So I think there is some continuity, even if we don't have the thing sitting here. But God calls his people to worship faithfully. That's a part of being in sync with him. That's part of being part of his program. And I would submit to you that if whatever the Holy Spirit is doing doesn't feel relevant to your life, the problem is probably not with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And the reason we come to God's Word, even the parts that don't immediately jump out at us, even the parts that we find difficult to understand, even parts we find offensive and, and that we wrestle with, is because we believe that God calls us faithfully to hear what he is saying. The reason we come and worship here on a Sunday morning together is because we recognize God calls us regularly to be setting aside time and attention to attend to the things that he has to say to us. I love what Kevin Jones said the other week in house church. We were talking about the fact that our house church had gotten kind of small and, you know, maybe it was time for us to, uh, to dissolve. And uh, Kevin said, you know, what? when I come here, it's, it's not for me. I come here because God calls me to be faithful. I'm not coming to get out of this what I can get out of this. I'm coming, and then I see what God is going to work through over time as I'm faithful to show up. 
And I have to believe that there are innumerable times that the people brought their offerings that they didn't feel a darn thing except maybe regret that they got one less goat in the herd. But they showed up faithfully. They worshipped acceptably, acceptably with reverence and awe the way God called them to. And that's what he calls us to do as well. There's a strong resonance between what God was doing then and what he is doing now. So as we go through the book of Leviticus over the next couple months, I want to encourage you as you read, as you read, to be asking, what was God doing then? And then what is God doing now in light of what he did between then and now? And to submit your agenda for what you want to find or learn about or see when you find the word to what God is doing. Because he is doing. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have not just spun the world like a top and let it go. We're grateful that despite our best efforts to muck up your good work. You continually demonstrate that you are about cosmic redemption and that you call us to be part of that. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to worship you in all of the ways that you call us to worship. In study, in prayer, in singing, in service, in giving, community, in confession, in reassurance, in admonition, exhortation. Lord, give us the grace to see what you are doing and to follow your lead as to what we're supposed to be doing as part of your much larger work. Help us to put aside the arrogant attitude that demand that you conform to our agenda, that demand that you answer the questions we're asking rather than the ones that you're posing. Give us the grace to be faithful in worshiping you in all the ways that you command, whether we feel like it or not, because you are worthy of worship. You call us to worship. pray that this would be all to the furthering of your kingdom's incursion into enemy territory, to your great delight, and to the glory of your name.